Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. In his novel Red Dragon, published in 1981, Thomas Harris introduced Hannibal Lecter as a small part of a story world that encompasses serial killers and the government agents chasing them down. The horror we read about is defined by the peculiar crimes, but also through how the point-of-view FBI agent Will Graham pursues his quarry, dubbed the Tooth Fairy, who has an uncanny skill for avoiding detection. Graham eventually visits an incarcerated psychiatrist-turned-cannibal, Lecter, so he can gain insights into the thinking and pattern of someone as crazed and methodical as the Tooth Fairy. Red Dragon is a good read, as are all of Harris's books, and it was first adapted for the screen and renamed Manhunter in 1986 by Michael Mann, with William Peterson starring as FBI agent Will Graham. Lecter was brought along for the ride and faithfully included as an interesting sideshow, played by Brian Cox, who does a memorable job giving life to someone neither sane nor insane, but definitely out of this world. Resuming his page-turning success, The Silence of the Lambs, published in 1988, Harris focused directly on Lecter. This time, the crime specialist is an FBI trainee named Clarice Starling, and her prey is a killer dubbed Buffalo Bill, who is the composite of three real-life serial killers because Bill skins his victims like Ed Gein, baits them into a van like Ted Bundy, and keeps them in a pit in his basement like Gary Heidnick. Into this sordid world, Lecter is reintroduced from a prison cell after Starling visits him to ask for help because... Once upon a time, Lecter was Bill's therapist. To one side of the investigation, Starling's mentor, Jack Crawford, carefully uses her to manipulate Lecter. Adapted for the screen by Ted Talley and directed by Jonathan Demme, The Silence of the Lambs was released in midwinter 1991 and became a blockbuster that hit the prevailing zeitgeist square on the head. I remember going to see it on a break from high school monotony, and I was totally unprepared for the refinement of Anthony Hopkins' as Hannibal Lecter, all the more because the men I was used to watching in the early 1990s were often physical behemoths locked in combat with the likes of Van Damme and Schwarzenegger. I was also aware of Jodie Foster as a recently minted Oscar winner for Jonathan Kaplan's The Accused in 1988, a story of a rape victim's pursuit of justice, which I had seen on the down low without parental permission. So her turn as Clarice Starling was a different kind of female empowerment from the entertainment I regularly consumed, and which does not satisfy the Bechdel test of basic feminism in a movie that presents at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. Demi's movie combines an anti-hero with a heroine, who is not defined by her sexual value to men as a vivid combination for the just-barely pre-Clinton era in America, much to the shock of critics and fans alike, both of whom were forced to acknowledge the appeal of fictional serial killers and their very persistent pursuers. Silence also outraged certain interest groups with its deliberately graphic crime scenes, the depiction of pathological violence as being tied to sexual and gender nonconformity, and the transvestism of Bill's person, which depends on wearing a bodysuit made of human skin. 
Which brings me to an important note. We must acknowledge the by now known fact of the movie's foundation, which was then totally extraordinary. Silence invites us to emotionally attach ourselves to a highly educated, erudite, curious, and even polite medical doctor and gourmand of unusual taste, Lecter, despite his having accepted cannibalism to organize food groups on his plate. Clarice is Lecter's opposite, although possessed of similar self-control because she ascended from poor white trash to the FBI, the pinnacle of American law enforcement. She is always underestimated and over-delivers, whether in conversation or through investigative care, and she presents a kind of vulnerability that combines flinty strength with true emotional confusion, making Starling every bit as innocent and capable as Hopkins' Lecter is cruel and calculating. Together, Starling and Lecter created some of the most memorable on-screen tension of 1991. The idea of their coupling was equally viewed as forbidden fruit of the highest order, although the various layers of Eros and Agape have been amply explored since 1991 in Harris' follow-up novel, Hannibal, published in 1999 and brought to the screen by Ridley Scott in 2001, which was also the basis of a controversial and bloody TV show. Interestingly, Gene Hackman was first offered the part of Lecter, and Michelle Pfeiffer was asked to play Starling, both passed on the project, allowing for the Hopkins-Foster combination to blur the boundary between norms of sanity and insanity, goodness and evil, while remaining relatively faithful to the source, with only the most necessary minimization of supporting parts, including the novel's presentation of Jack Crawford, played by Scott Glenn in the movie, and a streamlined pursuit of Buffalo Bill, Ted Levine. What remains most jarring about Demi's movie, though, is the way its point of view is frequently made to directly address and assault the audience. Using the usual establishing shots and cross-cutting details that define classical style, cinematographer Tak Fujimoto sometimes gazes straight into the face of his cast. Well, I've read the case files, have you? Everything you need to find him is right there in those pages. And tell me how. First principles, Clarice. Simplicity. Read Marcus Aurelius of each particular thing. Ask, what is it in itself? What is its nature? What does he do, this man you seek? Thus, the investigation into Buffalo Bill is about us as much as it's about capturing a serial killer, particularly when the movie's performers stare into the camera, as in this memorable exchange that makes us part of what happens instead of leading us to the safety of our seats at home. I heard a strange noise. What was it? It was... screaming. Some kind of screaming, like a child's voice. What did you do? I went downstairs, outside. I crept up into the barn. I was so scared to look inside, but I had to. What did you see, Clarice? What did you see? Lambs. They were screaming. They were slaughtering the spring lambs. They were screaming. Breaking the usual practice of working to erase any markers of a camera crew that produce our entertainment, The Silence of the Lambs experiments with film form. 
This means the typical effects of seamless storytelling, which lends us the feel of mastery over a story world, is ignored repeatedly in Demi's movie. Strangely enough, this reversal isn't all that noticeable, at least not for me until I'd seen the movie several times and could move beyond the eerie subject and unusual characters to match up content with off-kilter filmmaking technique. The movie also has a documentary-like feel. Starling's investigation is unsettling because it is filmed like a public television show about cosmetic surgery rather than as a deeply disturbing story about human cruelty and terrible, aberrant behavior. We watch Starling pull on latex gloves, record her observations, and do the nerd work of assembling clues that lead her through the rabbit hole of her investigation. Star-shaped contact entrance wound over the uh, sternum. A muzzle stamp at the top. Wrong for death. Wrong for death. Producers Ronald M. Bozeman, Edward Saxon, and Kenneth Ott undoubtedly felt strongly about the potential value of Harris's book, and the movie was lavished with a budget of $19 million, a fair sum for the times, considering this isn't a special effects heavy story with lots of stunts, but is instead a gritty, reality-based procedural set in the present. And the investment paid off with roughly $130 million at the domestic box office and an additional $142 million in international markets. More than a year after its original release, Silence of the Lambs became the third film in Academy Awards history to win the so-called Top 5 Awards of Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay. Following in the footsteps of It Happened One Night, Frank Capra's hit from 1934, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Milos Forman's hit from 1975, The Silence of the Lambs was that rare bird to capture critical rapture and popular support. One reason for the movie's eventual Oscar night's success was its long run-up to the awards season. Silence was already on home video shelves by October 1991, which gave Academy members ample time to see the movie and develop a reaction to its popular standing long before the traditional awards season of year-end holidays, which is where all four Best Picture competitors were released to cash in on the Christmas boom. Among also-rans for top Oscars was Barbara Streisand's self-centered version of Pat Conroy's novel The Prince of Tides, the popular favorite. There was also considerable support for Oliver Stone's three-hour-long conspiracy theory, JFK, and for Barry Levinson's biopic, Bugsy. Filling out the five nominees was Disney's animated fable, Beauty and the Beast, directed by Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise, that was the first-ever Best Picture-nominated animated feature. In remembering 1991 and The Silence of the Lambs as Best Picture, it seems incredible that several other keystone movies of the moment weren't mentioned for top honors, among them Thelma and Louise by Ridley Scott, Luc Besson's 1990 import from France, La Femme Nikita, and John Sayles's City of Hope. With time, each of these three titles is as interesting and remarkable as the four non-winners of the year, Thelma and Louise holds up because of two totally convincing lead performances that trace a unique journey away from trauma to personal freedom. La Femme Nikita works over similar material, albeit from an action movie perspective, by dreaming up a drugged-out street urchin turned worldly assassin who wants to be free of sadistic male control. Finally, City of Hope, partially made in response to Spike Lee's 1989 provocation, Do the Right Thing, 
gave us an unflinching vision of a rotting, multicultural America. For me, The Silence of the Lambs is a strange movie to consider as an example of an important film, given these other very solid titles from 1991, all the more because its baseline material is now the stuff of TV shows across the dial. We've become very used to watching attractive and sensitive investigators look into deplorable crimes to find bad guys and gals and bring them to justice. What makes Silence so wickedly memorable is its mix of brilliant one-liners to put Foster's Clarice Starling into such horrid jeopardy, like... Good evening, Clarice. Or... I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Or... People will say we're in love. Or... It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. When we consider the Foster Starling metatext, we do well to remember that Foster has been a working performer since she was a little girl in the mid-1960s. Having first appeared in print advertisements, she moved on to TV shows like Mayberry RFD and The Courtship of Eddie's Father, and then onward into feature films, for which she was a recognized star by age 14, having appeared in Tom Sawyer, Taxi Driver, Bugsy Malone, and Freaky Friday. This means Foster's career led us to watch her grow up, often playing worldly youths with unusual insight into the darkness of adulthood that became a terrifying part of her real-world adult transition when John Hinckley Jr. shot President Reagan in 1981, claiming he was trying to impress her. Since that time, Foster has arguably been the leading actress of her generation, magnified by her willingness to engage little-discussed stories about the lives of little-seen women, including her first Oscar-winning performance as Sarah Tobias in The Accused. My point with this digression is recognizing that Foster was a commercial and critical get when first cast in The Silence of the Lambs, but she was equally a vehicle for watching a striver, who was also a woman, grapple with a man's world and find her way. Her journey into Buffalo Bill's criminal history as a consequence of an unusual form of body dysmorphia is done in kitchen sink realist style. Her clothes are off-the-rack professional. The drab environments she visits, whether prisons, hospitals, jails, or various other public buildings in Ohio and Maryland, are cold and shadowy. The fallen world of the now is always a reminder that honesty and courage are vanishingly rare. Clarice Starling enters our field of view while running an obstacle course at the FBI training facility in Quantico, Virginia. She's fit, young, no-nonsense, task-oriented, and self-contained, and she has daddy issues that any knowing viewer will connect across her pre-silence roles as something of a thematic requirement for Foster's work, meaning we are on known ground in silence. We do not want that sweet little girl from the Coppertone ads, to be harmed now that she's a proper adult. Neither does her foe-turned-symbolic lover, Hannibal Lecter. I have no plans to call on you, Clarice. The world's more interesting with you in it. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!